Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly's COVID-19 online learning experience. This is Professor Berg all alone here doing a review for my intro to scripture class and we're reviewing for a test on what they know as unit four which is basically the New Testament epistles and I'm not going to give every answer for the test but kind of highlight some things that my students should think about if you're if you're eavesdropping on this conversation, a regular listener of Let the Bird Fly, um, I hope that you'll be intrigued as well to think about those things that we find in the New Testament epistles. One of the things that my students know that they're going to be asked about is the two natures of Christ. What are they and why does Christ need to be 100% true God and 100% true man? And I think a lot of this has to do with the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. If God comes down here and does not sin, we might think, what's the big deal? Of course he doesn't sin. He's God after all. And so Jesus needs to be 100% true man. He needs to walk in our shoes. He needs to be tempted in every way we are. He needs to be true man. He needs to be legitimately true man for our salvation to be legitimate, to actually count, to actually be righteous. Of course, only God could be perfect in this sinful world, and so he also needs to be 100% true God. And in order to die to pay the price for the sins of the world, well, he has to be true God there too. Uh, people die for other people actually all the time. And even if we could find a righteous person who could die, there's no way to think that that person death could be the payment for sins. And so 100% true God, 100% true man, the math doesn't work out, but that's okay. This is Jesus Christ, the person who is for our salvation. We also talked about something that's maybe a little bit newer to uh, the discipline of theology. Not that it wasn't there, but, but probably wasn't talked about as much until maybe the last few hundred years. And that is the threefold office of Christ. Now remember, an office, we don't mean a room with a desk and a computer in it, but we mean like the office of the presidency of the United States. It is a position, and the position of Christ, the office of Christ, is the anointed one, the one who has long promised, the one who is going to come and save the world. And Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He is the true prophet who speaks the word of God and is the word of God. He is the true priest, that is, the mediator between God and man with a sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice, and he is the king of king who rules all, both his left-handed kingdom and his right-handed kingdom. We also talked about the two states of Christ, and what we mean there is uh, humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation is to be made low. Exaltation is to be, to be highly praised, to be exalted, to be put up. Technically, in Christological terms, what we mean is that Christ, in his humiliation, did not make full use of his powers. And so, for instance, he died, he wept, he got tired. In his exaltation is when he did make full use of his powers. So turning water into wine, calming the seas and the, and the wind, rising from the dead. There's a couple that are tricky, though. What about his descent into hell? At first glance, this seems to be his humiliation, but it's actually his exaltation because his descent into hell was when he 
talk trash to the devil when it was a parade of victory. The other tricky one is the incarnation. Is that his humiliation or his exaltation? Well, I think it's probably both. That certainly becoming man would be something that would be beneath God in a certain sense. And he did not make full use of his powers by being born, by having to grow up in the household of Mary and Joseph. But certainly the infinite becoming finite, God becoming man, is one of the greatest miracles of all, if not the greatest of all, that and the resurrection from the dead. And so it's certainly a part of his exaltation as well. In this uh, Unit 4, we also talked about the commandments, and I try to make a big point to say the commandments there are law, first and foremost, as a sense of you can't do this and you won't do this. And so you have to look to Christ who fulfills the law in our place. So we are righteous not by law, but we are righteous by faith. Christ does it, we don't. It is also a guide. There's no use denying that. I think it does tell us what to do. Although in our state of sanctification as Christians, it is much more that we are righteous. This is what righteous people do. We are slaves to righteousness. We know what we do and we do it in freedom. And so we be, are to be very careful not to start thinking about we follow the laws in order to please God. But the Ten Commandments are also something that is about God's gift. All of these commandments are protecting a gift. The first one is protecting the gift of faith, that we should have one God, not trust in ourselves or in other gods. Uh, you can go down the line. Uh, commandment number five in our counting is protecting life. Six is protecting marriage. Seven is protecting our possessions. And so God is saying, follow these rules, not so that you can make me happy, but follow these rules so that you can enjoy the gifts that I have given you. We also notice that the first commandment is kind of unique because all the other commandments, when you break it, you also break the first commandment. When you break uh, the seventh commandment by stealing, what you're saying to God is, you haven't been a very good God. You haven't given me enough to survive on, or more likely you haven't given me enough to make me happy to have to live a full uh, and happy life. And therefore, I need to take matters into my own hands. And when we take matters into our own hands, we're saying we are the God. We are better than God. And so we also break the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. While we're talking about law, we also talk about maybe a, a definition of law. And sometimes we talk about the three uses of law, although that's debated. Uh, law is the will of God. What it does is it shows me my sin. What uh, it's a better definition is the law says, do this, as opposed to the gospel, which says, believe this, it is already done. Now, sometimes we talk about the three uses of law, mere, curb, and guide. The main use is the mere use, uh, and I'm not talking about the mere at a late night club where everybody looks good. I mean the mirror in your bathroom at six in the morning when you see every wrinkle and every blemish. It points to you and says, not good. The law shows you where you have, have made mistakes. More than that, that you are totally depraved. And if you aren't totally depraved, please answer me this question. Why haven't you gotten better? And so the law says you have no hope in yourself. And this is God's alien work to push us to the cross so that we can see God's proper work, which is to save us in the righteousness of Christ. The guide use, um, yeah, it's there. 
um, but once again, it is something more about this is who we are rather than I have to follow these rules. A righteous person doesn't need to ask him or herself what to do. A righteous person is just righteous. But there is the guide use that does tell us what to do, and we can think about the laws. For instance, we might think about what does it mean uh, to not murder. Jesus gives us uh, um, uh, an explanation of that. If, if you hate, then you are a murderer. And, and what about capital punishment? And, and, and what about suicide and all of those things? And we went through those in class as well. And so we do kind of ruminate on this law and think about it. Then there is a kind of a, a curb use uh, where it, it keeps us from f- throwing ourselves into anarchy. Um, you can think about the curbs on the side of the street that may keep a car on the road and not jumping over and onto the sidewalk. Um, there are certain rules that are not have anything to do with morality in and of themselves. Like there's nothing immoral about not stopping at a red octagon sign, but for the sake of order, it is there. And so the law does act like a curb in that way too. Grace and undeserved love um, comes to us in certain means. And so we've defined the means of grace as the avenue which, by which God's grace comes to us. We may say, Jesus died on the cross, was perfect in our place, and that is the gospel, the good news, and it certainly is. But there's a problem that happened 2,000 years ago, halfway across the globe. How does this come to us? And so by these means, this way God gives us the grace, these means of grace, is where we receive what Christ earned for us. And those four means of grace are word, baptism, holy communion, and absolution. And God limits himself, not that he has to, not that he is limited in himself, but he says, this is where I want to be found. Don't climb a high mountain and try to uh, find the meaning of life. Don't look inside of yourself for your inner light. I am going to come to you in physical ways. And we notice that those four means of grace are that's kind of unique when you think about it. If you're living in, in first century Palestine, you have these, these basics of life. You have wine, a uh, little alcohol in the water to keep it safe. You have uh, bread for sure. You have olive oil. Um, you have these, you have water. You have these things that, that, that are the basics of life. And, and God chose to use those things. It's not gold or silver, but things. Uh, uh, the olive oil, uh, you know, has a connection to baptism. It's not necessary there, but as the book of James tells us to anoint the sick with oil. And so this religious thing that happened, these means of grace that happened very early on in the New Testament, these were things that were used that were very readily available for everybody, rich or poor, no matter where they came from, no matter what ethnicity or background they had. We also talked about the church, and this is kind of a hard one to think about. What is the church? It certainly isn't just a building. It certainly isn't a denomination. It is all believers everywhere of all time. As Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And this is the temple. This is where the Holy Spirit dwells. This is, this is where you go to find out about God. And so we can rightfully say that there's no salvation outside of the church. We don't mean that you have to be a member of a, de- a specific denomination. What we mean is you need to have the spirit that comes through the word of God. And who does the word of God? Well, the church does. And you can add their baptism, holy communion. 
Now, sometimes we think about a visible church or an invisible church. Probably it's better to think about a visible church and a hidden church. What we mean by this is this, that we cannot see into the hearts of people. So I can't really draw a line around the church. You're in and, um, and you're out. What we mean by this invisible or hidden church is that uh, it is something of the heart. It is all believers everywhere of all time in heaven and on earth, no matter what denomination, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what language that church speaks. Now, it's probably better to think about it as hidden because it's hidden to us. It's not quite just invisible because it's still people, right? Now, what we mean by the visible church is is exactly what we see, those denominations, that, that church building down the road that says uh, 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 St. Elizabeth Roman Catholic Church or St. Uh, Martin's Episcopal Church or or, or whatever Lutheran, Methodist, or Presbyterian church, or non-denominational church. Those things are visible. But what is visible is not necessarily in the church. There may be people who are members of a church, but don't actually believe in their hearts. And so the technical name for that is someone who is a hypocrite. And what we mean by that is not that they're hypocritical, though in a certain sense they are, but that they are members of a church outwardly, visibly, but they don't actually believe in their heart. And so just being a member of a church doesn't mean you're in the club, sort of. It is something about the heart. We also talked about vocation a little bit, and I just want to reiterate that vocation means call. And when God, the caller, calls the Christian, the callee, there's always somebody in mind here, and that is the neighbor. And so there are three components, someone who calls, someone who is called, and the neighbor who is being served. And so God says, uh, I... I am going to call this person to carry out love in my economy of love. So he says, I want, I want students to be taught. So I'm going to use parents and teachers and principals to get it done. I want people to be fed. And I certainly could send manna and quail in your backyard every, uh, every evening and morning. I've done it before, but I choose to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And so I'm going to use farmer and grocer and FDA inspector and the person who packages the food and the person who uh, delivers the food and the person um, who makes the food and serves the food and cleans up after the food. And so what this means is that I have a vocation. I have a calling from God. In fact, I have many. And the equation goes God through me to my neighbor. And so this is, this is a very profound ethic. How do I look at my life? I say, who is my neighbor? I'm, I'm curved outward rather than being curved inward. And first of all, I'm curved outward and I see that Christ is righteous for me. So I'm not curved inward looking at myself, trying to find my freedom and my value. And once I have that freedom from, from the burden of trying to justify myself, remember, a righteousness by faith versus a righteousness by law, I'm turned up. And when I, I look up, I see not only Christ, who is righteous in my place, but I see my neighbor for the very first time and I see an object of love. This is profound meaning for human rights and my purpose in life. And I also look up and I see God's gift of the world given back to me. For every vocation that I fulfill as, for instance, for me as father or professor or citizen in this world, there's hundreds, if not millions, of vocations that God is using to love me. And this is all gift. I don't have to feel guilty about it, nor do I have to use those people and those gifts in order to make myself righteous. It truly is a 
gift that I can enjoy. Uh, and so that's just a nutshell of what vocation is. We did have a longer explanation of that in this last unit. Some other bigger topics to think about. I, I may think about uh, what baptism is according to Romans chapter 6. St. Paul says that it is a death and it's a resurrection. In order to understand the death and the resurrection, you have to understand what we know as the symbol. I am simultaneously sinner and saint. So St. Paul says that, that anybody who is baptized is baptized into Christ's death. Well, what does that mean? That means my sinful nature. My old Adam is crucified, killed to death, and buried, no longer to haunt me. It's dead. And what is resurrected then is a new person, the righteous, right? Simultaneously, sinner and saint, sinner and the righteous one. So now I'm resurrected to live a new day every day. I'm not that old sinful jerk anymore. I am this new person in Christ who is going to live this day. And quite frankly, bring it on world, whatever, whatever you got to throw at me, you can't unring the bell of baptism. That is an historical fact. And so notice that faith is connected to a fact of history, something that occurred in Palestine 2000 years ago and then made notice the means of grace aspect of baptism then made for me then then is it's applied to me in a very real way a very intimate way i would argue that i die and rise and if i have been connected to christ's death and resurrection every day every day i i, I die to myself when i confess my sins and i'm resurrected as a new person then i'm certainly also connected with christ's resurrection to all eternity and so because I am simultaneously sinner and saint, baptism is an everyday thing. It's an everyday death and resurrection until one day that old sinful nature is dead and remains dead and I'm resurrected into all eternity. So Romans chapter 6, review that, students. That's just such a key uh, portion uh, of scripture and for your life. We've been uh, talking about the two kinds of righteousness from day one in our class, uh, but we'll just really quick uh, review that right now. There's a righteousness by law and there's a righteousness by faith. A righteousness by law is that I am justified, that is, I am right, I am righteous by following laws. This is a dead end because there's no way that I could follow all of the laws. And so what I try to do, or better yet, my old sinful nature tries to do is tries to justify myself. I say, well, God, if you had given me a better wife, then I wouldn't have cheated. Uh, God, if you had given me um, uh, a better, better uh, teachers when I was younger, then I wouldn't have to cheat on the test. If, if you had given me more, then I wouldn't have had to grumble and complain. And so we try to justify, we try to make ourselves right and righteous. Well, as we said, that didn't work in kindergarten. It's not going to work uh, before God. It doesn't work in the courthouses of the United States. It's not going to work in the courthouse of God. But then there is a righteousness that is apart from us. It comes from outside of us. And it is Christ's righteousness that declares us and, in fact, makes us righteous, makes us saints. Remember, sinner saints at the same time. This is a righteousness by faith. I can reject it, and then I'm stuck in that old system, that righteousness by law. And what I'm saying is, God, I don't need your help. I can, I can be judged by my own actions, and I'll take my chances. I think I'm righteous by myself, righteous by law. 
We talked about this uh, one, maybe not as much as we should have, so we'll do it here. But uh, and this is kind of a not a controversial one, but I'm not sure it's it's the best analogy. But I think it's helpful to me, and that's talking about Jesus in Holy Communion as penicillin. So we have this this thing in First uh, Corinthians where Saint Paul says uh, a person has to a person really has to uh, look at themselves and judge themselves. Are they worthy to come? And, and touch Christ's body and blood and come to this very holy communion with the church and with God, a communion that is vertical with God and that is horizontal with the rest of the church. And, and St. Paul says, if you do not examine yourself um, and you come haphazardly um, and you don't believe, you don't believe A, that you're a sinner, B, that Jesus died for you, and C, that this is really Christ's body and blood, you actually are drinking damnation upon yourself. And, and the analogy goes like this, that, that Jesus, we know from his own words, that he is the judge, he is the savior and redeemer, but he's also the one who judge. All judgment has been given to the son. And so Jesus, uh, to the unbeliever, is, is not a nice guy. Um, he is the one who brings the wrath of God. And so the difference is not, not about who is good and who is bad. It's about the person who lives by righteousness, by law, righteousness, by faith. Do you trust that Jesus did this for you or do you want to be judged on your own accord? And if you are, well, then the judge is going to bring down the law. And so the analogy there is Jesus is like penicillin. So when the church delivers Holy Communion, when it offers this very precious body and blood for the forgiveness of sins, then we want to be careful about who we give it to. I, I want to know if you believe this or not. And, and if you don't believe it, this sweet Jesus, who is penicillin, the, the greatest, you know, the greatest medicine or, or source of medicine of, of all that cures so many things, that cures death, sin, and, and all the rest, unless you're allergic to it. I, I want to know if you're allergic to it or not before I dispense this medicine. I want to know if you believe or not. And so this is the basis of what we call closed communion, that we don't let anybody in. And it's not because it is trying to be exclusive. It's just that we love. We want to be very careful. We want to know what you believe before you partake. Let's go back to the high priest thing. We see this in, in Hebrews. Jesus is the ultimate high priest because not only does he make the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice, the, the mediation between God and man. And so you remember from the Old Testament that there is these barriers between the people and God. And just uh, there's physical barriers, right? In the temple structure, there were courtyards. There was two places, the holy place and the most holy place in the, in the temple proper. And only the priest could go into the holy place and only the high priest and only once a year on the day of atonement could go into the presence of God in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, this, this throne, if you will, this, this seat of mercy where God would specifically, where God specifically said, I will be there. So sacrifices were, be, were made. And remember, remember the point of the sacrifices that they taught a theological point of view that you are sinful and you cannot help it. You are born with it and anything that had to do with the cycle of life and death pointed to this sinfulness and that the salvation from this sin had to come outside of you. You couldn't fix the problem. And uh, in order to be freed from death, sin, hell, and the devil, 
there had to be a sacrifice because the going rate, freedom isn't free and the going rate for freedom is almost always blood. And this kind of freedom is going to be some special blood. And so sacrifices were made pointing ahead to the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that actually would take away the sins of the world. So you had these barriers. You couldn't go to God. Remember, 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 you can't go, sinners can't go to heaven. Then it wouldn't be heaven anymore. It would be Milwaukee all over again. And so God needs to make us not sinners, but saints so that we can be with him in heaven. But there's so many barriers there. But Jesus Christ with his sacrifice breaks down the barrier. So notice then in the Old Testament, the regular person had to go through the priest to get to God, who made us the priest making a sacrifice. But if Jesus is the high priest, and he is God, and we get to go to the priest, we actually get to go to God. The barriers are broken down. And this is symbolically seen on Good Friday when Jesus dies, that temple curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place ripped in two. So we have Jesus, the high priest, who is not unsympathetic with us, but lived in every way we are, tempted in every way except without sin. And that breaks down the barrier between us and God. We are at one. See the word atonement there. We are at one with God. Another thing we bandied about a little bit was the idea of how a Christian could rejoice in suffering. And we see this in Philippians and Romans and other places, of course. How can a Christian rejoice in suffering? Uh, this is a very important question because half a life is suffering and that's a good that's on a good day in America let alone a bad day in a third world country and so if if suffering has no meaning then half of life has no meaning again that's on a good day and so a theology of suffering if we could speak that way is very important and God does give us hints about the meaning of suffering suffering builds uh, perseverance and character and hope uh, suffering leads to compassion for other people who are suffering. It's a mark of, of the church. Um, if we are to love, then it th that comes with suffering, just as Christ loved us through his suffering. We are connected. We even share in Christ's suffering in our vocations. When we die to ourselves, we live for others. We are, as St. Paul says, living sacrifices. But for perhaps the most important reason is this alien work of God, much like the law points out our sins so that we have no hope in ourselves and that we go to Christ. So suffering reminds us that the government, the doctors, the scientists, our therapists, ourselves, this world cannot fix death and sin and hell. There is something of the soul that cannot be fixed. And so this suffering leads us to say, we need Christ. And all along during this suffering, God leads us to this faith, to this stronger faith. And so put it very bluntly, if the goal is that we trust in Christ, our righteousness by faith, so that we don't trust in anything else, usually ourselves, our righteousness by law, trying to make ourselves right with God by doing something by law, by our own human devising and plan. If the goal is faith in Christ, and not in ourselves or anything else, seems to me that God maybe needs to smack us on the back of the head so that we stop believing and trusting in ourselves. And so even though the suffering can be absolutely painful and unjust and awful and terrible, it is ultimately used for our good 
so that we trust in Christ and can have eternal life. It seems a little bit crude, but it's actually quite wonderful to know that God is in charge of suffering, that it's not just meaningless stuff, that it's not just an uphill battle to try to rid ourselves of suffering in this world, a task that we know that we can never complete. Let's get to law and gospel a little bit, uh, especially when we talked about it in uh, the letter, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. Law says do this, and it is never done. Gospel says believe this, it is already done. And so we have a righteousness once again by faith. We believe that Christ is righteous in our place. As opposed to a righteousness by law, we try to justify ourselves and our actions and find value in our own doing. But it became really tricky when uh, the, the first Christians were, were gathering together, coming out of the synagogues, making these congregations. You had both Jewish and Gentile people, completely different cultures, different ways of dressing, different ways of thinking about God and the world, certainly different diets and different religious customs. And you can imagine that it was a little bit troubling for these Jewish people who had suffered so much, who finally had gotten their Savior, their Messiah, Jesus Christ, to then welcome in all of these other people. They always had done that, even in the Old Testament. Remember, it was not about ethnicity. The Jewish ethnicity was about the Jewish religion. And there were certainly people that were not uh, of Jewish uh, ethnic backgrounds that were believers in God and even would take on these Jewish customs. But now that Jesus had come, you did not need those preparation customs. Like, you don't need to make sacrifices anymore because those were a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And once he made the sacrifice, you don't need to do the pictures anymore. Same with the washing rituals. Same with all of the cultural dietary restrictions and even circumcision that marked Israel as something different. Remember we talked about how all of these weird custom, uh, we call ceremonial laws, they did have a theological meaning behind them often, the ceremonial washings and the promise given through circumcision, but they also made Israel different. They, they, God had to keep his promise of a savior through this specific family in this specific land. And so he protected these people militarily, but he also protected them culturally. They were different. They weren't supposed to eat shellfish or pork. They cut off that part of the, uh, of the body, that skin from the body, to mark them as something different. They were weird. They were different in a certain sense. And you may say, well, how is that going to keep them around? And then, I, I, uh, as I said multiple times, uh, next time you watch the Olympics, tell me where the Moabites are in the Parade of Nations or the Philistines or the Phoenicians. They're all gone swallowed up by bigger and badder cultures. And little old Israel survives. And part of the reason is because they were culturally different. But now that Jesus was here, you didn't need to follow those laws. You could. Those were nice customs in a certain way. You certainly could follow those dietary restrictions. But two points. One is you didn't need them anymore. You didn't need to be separate. Now the glory of of the Jewish people was that everybody gets to be Jewish. That's the greatest honor. It would be the glory of Israel that the nations, the Gentiles, would have their Messiah, that the Messiah would be for all. The second main point, and this is the main point in Galatians, 
is that if you think following those ceremonial laws makes you righteous, then you're in a righteousness by law. And number one, you're misinterpreting the law of the Old Testament. That's not what the purpose was. The purpose was to point ahead to Jesus and to keep Israel separate. The point was not you follow these laws and then God loves you, as if not working on the Sabbath somehow pleased God, right? Just think how backwards that is. Well, I didn't work today, therefore God should love me. No, this is about trusting God. This is about trusting in his plan. And so you misunderstood the purpose of the law. And you're in dangerous place if you think that following these simple laws, although some of them are, are, are a little bit difficult, following these little going through the motions kinds of laws made you righteous before God, then you've totally misunderstood God's love. And how dare you say to somebody else that you have to follow these laws, otherwise you're not a true believer, a true Christian. And so here comes in the concept of, uh, of, uh, of the freedom of a Christian. I'm free from all of these laws. I'm free to enjoy whatever I want to eat, in moderation, of course. I'm free because this is a gift from God. And it's a gift from God, and I can only appreciate it as a gift from God because I don't have to be righteous myself. And so even if I screw it up, I know that I'm righteous in Christ. And I don't have to use people or use food or use myself, have a 10-year plan, a five-year plan, all these things. I don't have to use those things in order to be righteous. I am righteous, and that is quite freeing. At the same time, we are free not to be uh, uh, like a libertine, which is, I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. God will forgive me. No, remember, I'm righteous. And so a righteous person is going to act like a righteous person. And my sinful, being a simultaneously sinful and a saint at the same time, my sinful person, my old man, will try to convince myself that my freedom means I can do whatever I want, but this is just a slavery to sin. No, I'm free in vocation to serve my neighbor. I'm free to be this loving, righteous person. And a loving person is going to be very careful about other people. And so you can imagine this old grandmother, Jewish grandmother, and all of a sudden there's this influx of these Roman Gentiles who, who dress differently, talk differently, and have different customs, are coming into her, into her congregation. And, and, and let's say that she's glad for it. Deep down, she really is, is praising God for this, but, 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 but they eat pork. And they're not circumcised, and that bothers her. Uh, you can imagine completely changing your dietary uh, restrictions. Um, and she's not going to eat pork anymore, and God bless her, she doesn't have to, as long as she doesn't think she's doing something for God by not eating pork. And she doesn't have the right to say to somebody else, you can't eat pork. At the same time, the person who is free in Christ to eat pork understands that this is very difficult for that old Jewish grandma. And so if the old Jewish grandma is going to come over um, and, and to, the, to the Gentile house for a meal, because now they are one in Christ, he's not going to have a pig roast. Out of love, he's not going to offend. And so in this way, I can give up my freedom so as not to offend. Yes, I'm free to have a beer in modern and drink alcohol in moderation. But if Uncle Frank, uh, the alcoholic, comes over to Thanksgiving, I, in my freedom, will choose not to exercise my freedom and do that in love. Okay, 
So we got to be very careful that we don't mix law and gospel. Gospel is believe this, this is already done. Law is do this, and of course it is never done. If I start to make the law something that I have to do in order to get God's grace, then I've mixed law and gospel. And this is the most dangerous thing to do. All right. Well, there's much more, of course, in uh, St. Paul's epistles and John's and, and uh, uh, much more to, to know about in the book of Acts and Revelation and all the rest. But here are some things, just kind of a primer for you students to think about as you prepare for our Unit 4 test. Uh, please know that I'm going to ask you to write all this out. Uh, some of the stuff that I said will be on it. Some of it won't be on it. And there's some things we didn't talk about that will be on it. So make sure that you're reviewing your notes. And when you do write the essays, I will give you this heads up right now that you need to have passages to back up your uh, to back up uh, uh, your thoughts and your essays. You can use your Bible during the test, of course. But think about these things that we've talked about and be able to go in your mind and say, can I answer this question about law and gospel, about the two natures of Christ, about baptism, about Holy Communion, Christ being the high priest? Uh, how can someone suffer? Do I really have a good concept of the main point of Galatians? Um, and if you do that, you're going to be fine. Everything will be great. And uh, and you'll get an A. So until next time, let the bird fly. <laughs>